You're listening to the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Notoff, and I interview former Blue Angel pilots and crew. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Dr. Gary Mullen, who was a flight surgeon for the Blue Angels back in 2003 and 2004. Now, you might recognize Dr. Mullen's name because he was prominently featured in the documentary series Blue Angels A Year in the Life. We're going to talk all about that documentary series, but first, Dr. Mullen's going to give us some insight into what it takes to be a flight surgeon on the Blue Angels. He's also going to share some candid recollections of some of the more challenging moments of his Blue Angel career, which included making a medical recommendation that would have a lasting impact on the 2014. He also talks about some of the devastating impacts of Hurricane Ivan and the effects that had on the Blue Angels' schedule. Now, towards the end of this episode, Dr. Mullen talks to me about the clean break philosophy that the Blue Angels take when a member leaves the team. This is something I hadn't heard of before, but I find it quite fascinating, and I think you're going to enjoy it as well. And before we close out, we get a few humorous stories. So if you like the Blue Angels and Blue Angels history, then please stick around and join me in welcoming Dr. Gary Mullen to the podcast. All right, Dr. Gary Mullen, thank you so much for joining me here on the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. It's been a real honor for me to meet you over the last couple of years at the Blue Angels homecoming in Pensacola. And I know things are pretty busy and hectic right now. So I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to sit down with me tonight and share some of your stories. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, man. So what part of the country did you grow up in? I grew up in Westchester, Ohio. It's a suburb, probably about 30 to 40 minutes north of Cincinnati. Nice. And growing up, did you know you had an interest in medicine and the Navy and aviation, or is that something that happened over time? I had no idea I was going to end up in the Navy. Uh, I sort of always wanted to be a doctor as a kid. It was one of those things I was always interested in biology, was always trying to you know, learn about reptiles and catch snakes. I remember as a child, I don't know that there was a sentinel event that made me decide I was going to be a doctor. It was it was always something that I was just interested in and was kind of natural for me. Um, I remember anesthetizing bugs and frogs with, with diethyl ether when I was probably 10 or 11 years old and just being fascinated by, by the biology and the physiology of it and kind of followed that path and ended up uh, luckily getting into medical school and, and uh, you know, completing that, that path. Uh, by way of an interruption in the Navy, which we'll talk about. Well, I can safely say you and I had very different hobbies at the age of 10. But let's talk about how you found your way in the Navy. Were you inspired by seeing a Blue Angels air show, or was it was it something else that drove you to join the Navy? No, I think what attracted me to the Navy was my passion for aviation, and it was a natural follow-on for me. Uh, I don't know. I didn't come from a military family. I had an uncle who was in the Army. Um, and I, I never did see the Blue Angels as a child. I actually got an invitation from a recruiter to go when I was a medical student, and that show got rained out. So I never actually saw the Blue Angels perform until I was in the Navy. I was very interested in aviation. In fact, I was in college when the first Gulf War broke out. I was a first-year college student. This was in 1990. And I went and talked to a recruiter, and of course, the recruiters try to get you to enlist and I had enough sense to know that that was going to be a, a major detour from my interest in medicine. I did not enlist. And then, of course, that war was over in a couple of days. But I always had that sort of desire to learn more about aviation and kind of kept it in the back of my mind. And throughout med school, I, I had talked to this recruiter, the one that brought me to the uh, tried to bring me to the Blue Angels Air Show and wanted to learn more about being a flight surgeon a uh, Navy flight surgeon specifically, but I never did. Uh, I was always a little bit nervous about taking the scholarship money as a medical student. So as I'm sure you know, when you take a, a health profession scholarship in medical school, 
you then incur an obligation to owe time as a physician to the Navy. And I was a little bit uh, unsure that I would still be able to be a flight surgeon because if they needed no flight surgeons, for example, but they needed general medical officers or dive officers, uh, that's what I would have been. Uh, So I waited. And then uh, it was during my internship year that I decided to leave residency and join the Navy. I had already matched into a residency. And about uh, a third of the way through that year, I called that recruiter and said, I think I'm ready to, to do this. Uh, get me in the Navy if, if we can find a spot as a flight doc. And he did. He came through for me. So you joined the Navy. Where are you deployed and what training is required to become a flight surgeon? I was a little bit unusual. I was what they call a direct commission. And as I recall, there were only two people that year that got direct commissions to go into flight surgery. Um, I remember I I got a trip to Pensacola with this recruiter in the fall. This would have been 99, I guess, 98, 98 or 99. And he wanted to take me to Pensacola to make sure that I had the physical standards to become a flight surgeon. You have to meet certain physical standards. And of course, they look at aptitude testing. They want to make sure that you don't have any uh, pass that's going to interfere with being an officer. Uh, They need to make sure that you have a medical license. So we took this trip to Pensacola and everything seemed to work out. So I came back and told my my program director I was going to quit the residency. And, uh, you know, he told me it was the biggest professional mistake I was ever going to make. My medical school mentor told me it was going to be a huge mistake to leave residency, that it would be a black eye on my career. My parents were really nervous because there was so much uncertainty with leaving a, you know, the residency program is a sure thing. You will finish residency and you'll become a board certified doctor and you kind of go on with your career. And I remember thinking that I was going to be 31 years old and really only trained to do one thing in life. And that actually frightened me more than anything else. And I was pretty risk averse, uh, but I took the the gamble. I said, I'm, I'm going to do this because even if I have a terrible time joining the military, it's going to be at least as good as internship or residency. It can't be worse than that. So uh, I got in the Navy and um, got the direct commission spot, got commissioned, and I never looked back. It was the single best professional decision I've ever made in my life. And we had an absolute ball uh, in the Navy. So you get commissioned. What's the scope of the role of a flight surgeon in the fleet? So the first part of it is is going to flight surgery school. So it is about a six or seven month course. It's taught at NAMI, which is the Naval Aerospace Medical Institute in Pensacola, Florida. And they take these, these are mostly relatively new doctors. Some of them are already board certified, but most of them are straight out of internship. And they teach you how to be uh, an operational doctor. They teach you how to deal with unique issues that uh, that are faced by uh, by aviation crew. And your job when you get attached to a squadron or an air wing or a carrier is to protect the aeromedical assets that are in that squadron or carrier. Your job is to uh, prevent mishaps. Uh, and then if there is a mishap, your sort of secondary job is to go and uh, investigate that and, and perform an aeromedical analysis of that mishap. As an ancillary job, you take care of the families of the air crew and the squadron to the extent that you're you're able to. And that kind of depends on how and where you're deployed. So you are eventually deployed. Did you go to an aircraft carrier? Did you go to a naval air base? Where did you end up? So I went to a squadron called VC-8. It was the last composite squadron. Uh, that, uh, that squadron was in Roosevelt Roads, Puerto Rico. And we spent two years, I, I was newly married at the time. So uh, me and my new wife went to Puerto Rico. And although that squadron is considered on a permanently deployed status, we didn't deploy in the sense 
that we uh, went on a cruise or on a carrier. So we stayed, we lived in Puerto Rico. And the, the mission of that squadron was twofold. One, the A4 component of the squadron had a function as um, uh, adversary squadron. So they performed orange or red air. So when the fleet would come down for fleet exercises, VC-8 would act as the adversary squadron. And then the other component was we had a, a helicopter contingent in that squadron that would do aeromedical evacuation for both military and civilian assets anywhere in the Puerto Rico operations area. So we did a lot of medevacs. We did a lot of assistance with Coast Guard work. We did some, uh, uh, unfortunately, some recovery efforts for uh, immigration and narcotics interdiction. We would provide uh, sort of some aerial support on the helicopter side. And it was really neat because as a newly minted flight surgeon, you sort of realize very quickly that you're getting uh, to bite off a lot more responsibility than you probably deserve at your age or level of experience. And I think some people really thrive in that. And uh, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. It was, you know, it's it, it's hard living. I don't know if you, you would call, you know, Puerto Rico is not really a foreign country being that it's a U.S. territory, but it was, it's different living there than in the, in the continental U.S. So it was tough living there. So during that time and with flight surgeon in your job title, I have to assume you got to ride in the back of a Navy jet. Tell me about the experience of riding in the back of a Navy jet for the first time. So the first time in the back of a Navy jet was with my skipper, Brad Steele who was uh, the skipper when I checked in to Rosie Rhodes to VC-8. And, um, you know, the Navy is unique compared to the other services in that it requires the flight surgeons to fly as a crew member uh, for four hours per month at the time I was in, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's just enough to keep you engaged. And if you go to a squadron as a, as a flight surgeon and you're interested in aviation like I was, they'll sort of let you fly as much as you want. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how many hours per week or per month I would fly, but I tried to stay really engaged. And the pilots like it when they get to fly with the dock because it keeps them plugged into the dock. So I went out on a um, on an air-to-air hop with the, the skipper and <laughs> jumped in the back of the A4. And you know what I remember? It, it was so much different than I imagined. Uh, of course, I'd been through the, uh, the short version of the training squadron as a flight dock. So I'd sat in the back of the T-34s, which are pretty used uh, because uh, of all the training that's done. But when you get in the back of an, of an A4 at that time, those airplanes were probably 40 or 50 years old and they looked every bit of it. You know, it was just a very small, uh, worn out, uncomfortable cockpit, but it was such a fantastic airplane. It was so much fun to fly. It was just a really great experience. Wow. So you didn't have any adverse reaction to sitting in the back of a Navy jet. It's obviously a much different experience than, say, sitting in an airliner, but you didn't get sick at all? Yeah, I should preface this, you know, not a Navy pilot, but I did during my internship. The one thing I did was I went and got my private pilot license on my own uh, uh, sort of during the time that I got commissioned by the Navy. So I had to finish my internship before I could go on active duty. And during that time, I finished my my private pilot license. So I kind of knew a just a little bit about flying. And then when I went through the short course of the uh, flight school that they send the flight docs to in the Navy, uh, I got to take that training, uh, you know, learn a little bit more about flying. So getting in the back of the airplane wasn't really foreign from flying. It was just much different than I had expected. And, and it's funny because when you look at when you look at jets, and I still hear this when I go to air shows, you look at the, um, the fighters people don't really imagine it's it's not an entirely comfortable experience sitting in in a fighter um it's it's small it's crowded you know you're wearing a lot of gear the harness has to be very tight it's very hot and then you're sitting under a canopy uh and then you're pulling a lot of g so you're sweating 
uh, a lot, uh, but but I loved it. I really enjoyed the the uh, the flying that I got to do in the Navy. And you were in the Navy at the same time that 9-11 happened. Were you in Roosevelt Road on that day? I was in Puerto Rico uh, when 9-11 happened. I remember that day very clearly. What was it like being in the Navy on 9-11? I have to assume that there was a huge sense of uncertainty, but also a patriotic rally. But what was your experience being in the military on 9-11? Early that morning, around nine o'clock, you know, I've been at work for a couple hours. I got a phone call from my sister who lives in Kentucky. And she said, you know, a really strange thing happened. An airplane flew into the World Trade Center. And I said, well, that's really unusual. I'm sure it was, you know, a terrible accident. And she said, no, I, I kind of feel like we're under attack. You need to watch the news. And I, it was really strange uh, kind of coming from my sister. Uh, so I went to the ready room. And uh, sure enough, uh, some point when I was in there, the second airplane uh, hit the second building. And, um, you know, the base kind of went to general quarters. My wife, uh, who was a civilian at the time, was working on the base in the immunization clinic. And what I remember is that they made every all the civilians leave the base and the base went to GQ. They put up gun batteries at all the entrances to the base uh, and they essentially locked it down. And um, I remember that night I actually stayed. I think we all stayed on the base and we just, we didn't really know what was going to happen next. We were sort of awaiting orders, but we had, um, we met as a squadron and we got, you know, as much in, intel as we could from our commanding officer. And he basically told us to, to be ready and that there would be deployments but what I remember most was that it really, in my mind, cemented a sense of nationalism. You know, I was always proud to be in the Navy. I was very proud of uh, to be, you know, American. And it was just an order of magnitude more than that. We really wanted to find who was responsible and take them to task for it. And I think that that feeling persisted for a long time in the military. The other thing that it made me realize, and I, I kind of knew this, but, you know, I was in a squadron that, you know, I kind of felt like I was on vacation. I got to live in a fantastic place that was, it was not hostile. You know, we weren't going out on a carrier. We weren't really being threatened by any hostile force. But what I realized then was we were really at the tip of the spear. Like the guys that I was working with in that squadron were going to, instead of getting out of the Navy, uh, and I would later see them on the news. They were going to stay in the Navy and forego their airline career, and they were going to go back to fighter squadrons, and they were going to get deployed. That's what they wanted to do. And it was kind of neat seeing those guys months later on the news, uh, on the on the deployment, on the carriers. And then I think um, it was neat because after I left Puerto Rico, I went to a training wing, and after that training wing, got picked up for the Blues. So that would have been, you know, three, three-ish years later. It, that sense of nationalism was still incredibly strong, and we were still being thanked for our service every time we would do an air show. And people were just extremely pro-military at that time. Were you redeployed as a result of the events of 9-11, or did you stay in Roosevelt Road? I was not. I, was, I stayed in VC-8, and uh, let's see, I left VC-8 uh, about a year after, not quite a year after 9-11 happened and went to a training wing. Gotcha. And then at some point, you were obviously inspired to submit an application for the Blue Angels. What was the catalyst for you to apply to be a Blue Angel? So when I was a flight surgeon student, the schoolhouse that we would have classes in every day to learn about the, these aeromedical things was, was right next to uh, the field where the Blue Angels practice in Pensacola. So we would hear them and see them flying every day over the schoolhouse. 
And that was really neat. And that was, again, in 1999. At some point when I was in Puerto Rico, I came back to Pensacola for, we brought an A4 back to Pensacola for uh, for something. I don't recall what, what we did. It was some short deployment. And one of my fishing buddies was uh, uh, married to the supply officer for the Blue Angels. And we were sort of having dinner one night, uh, all of us. And she said, you know, you really ought to think about applying to the flight dock position. And it had never really occurred to me. I'd never met the flight surgeon for the Blue Angels uh, prior to that. And I did. And I applied with the, I actually applied a year. So for the flight surgeon, you apply every other year because it's a two-year job, two-year billet. And I applied a year early just to sort of feel out how it would work and try to get to know the team and see if it would fit. And then uh, the next year, I decided I would apply for real. And I did. And somehow I got picked up. And tell me about that special moment when you learned that you made the Blue Angels. Oh, I recall that minute. I mean, it was a fantastic, uh, it was a it was an incredible experience. So I don't know if you or your listeners know this, the the, um, the, the, the wingman spots on the team are extraordinarily competitive. I mean, I can't even imagine. I don't even know how many applicants there are for each spot. It's extremely competitive. It is it is much less competitive for the support officers of which the flight surgeon is one, but it's still competitive. And I think there may have been, I want to say there were 11 or 12 flight surgeons applying when I applied. So the first thing you have to do is is get uh, invited to come to finalist week. So you you rush the team in a similar fashion as the wingmen. You try to get to know as many people as you can on the team. And then they give you like a five minute window to call in to see if you're invited to finalist week. And I remember so clearly, I, I, you know, of course I set my watch to the the international clock. I uh, found a quiet parking spot where I had really good cell phone reception. Uh, At that time I was attached to the training wing in in Kingsville, Texas. And then you kind of ask yourself, well, do I call at the beginning of the five minutes? I don't want to look too eager or, but you don't want to look like you're lazy, so you don't want to call in the last minute and you know give them pause. So you sort of time your your phone call, and and um, I called, and the the applicants officer that year I think was uh, Dan Martin Dino, and uh, Dino said we you know he invited me to come down for finalist week, and uh, that was really the first hurdle. So I was I was thrilled to get to do that, and then um, and then you go down for finalist week, and and you spend a week down there. You do a, a full interview day. You do a lot of social activities with the team. You have to meet the wives of the team, which is a whole nother layer of uh, stress and complexity. And then um, again, they give you the five minute window to call in to see if you made the team. It was so funny. I I made my, I was, again, I was, had been married at that time, about two years. I made my wife leave the apartment, had the clock set and called and talked to Boss Field. And, and uh, he told me, to pack my bags and get my butt to Pensacola. And it was, it was one of the neatest experiences uh, of my professional life. It was really cool. Nice. And so you make it onto the Blue Angels, you onboard onto the team. And I'm assuming being a flight surgeon on the Blue Angels is different than being a flight surgeon in the fleet. And the scope of your responsibilities expand, including what we now understand is providing feedback to the demonstration pilots. How awkward is that for you to have to give feedback to the demo pilots and did you ever get any blowback for that? The first thing I should I should sort of preface this by is that the medicine that you do in a squadron uh, like the Blue Angels is is not a lot because generally you're dealing with extremely healthy, extremely motivated individuals who understand that that the safety is 
directly related to how well they take care of themselves. So I think it is a, uh, it's a little bit of a selection bias that there are not a lot of medical problems that you have to deal with. And I should add that my medical department consisted of two corpsmen who are probably uh, two of the finest medical corpsmen in the Navy that I, I've ever met. So they are really good at protecting the doc from uh, unnecessary distractions because your primary job as the doctor on that team is to provide the, the feedback. So the training for that is done in winter training and the uh, the doctor and the maintenance officer overlap by one year. So my first year, I was trained by my Mo, who was Ed Twining. And uh, you spend the entire winter training and most of that show season learning exactly what components. And the way we did it was, I've heard you uh, talk about LSOs with Boss Dom. So the LSO is the guy who stands on the back of the carrier and grades every naval aviators landing. So every landing is graded. And the LSOs are also naval aviators, and they do this with shorthand. So we sort of use an adapted uh, version of that shorthand to grade each part of each maneuver to provide the pilot's feedback. Uh, and then we would watch that maneuver sort of frame by frame as we went through the video at the end of the show. We would spend probably on a short day, an hour and a half in the debrief for the video, on a long day, two and a half hours debriefing a 40-minute show. So we would really painfully go through frame by frame and look at uh, each maneuver, and I would provide the feedback. Now, of course, you're the doctor, so you know, show me a naval aviator that wants to listen to their doctor. <laughs> I mean, you know, they it was a uh, it was an endless stream of grief that I would get for doing this, but it was kind of neat because I was able to give it to them as, hey, I know what you saw as the pilot, but I'm, I can only tell you what the what the crowd saw from where I was standing, and that's really what they want because the goal ultimately is to make the show look perfect and to make the airplanes look very close together. And you joined the Blues in 2003. Is that is that right? That's correct. 2003, 2004. And that's the same time period that boss Russ Bartlett joined the Blues to lead the team. Can you tell me about working with boss Bartlett? He was a fantastic boss. My initial, uh, so the, the team is selected differently than the boss, as you know. And um, my initial conversation with, with Beef was when we were, uh, we had just been selected for the team. I think within a couple of days, he started sending emails and describing, um, you know, what he was like and, and his, his background and his history. Um, and what I remember about uh, Boss Bartlett was he is, he's one of those individuals who just, he was an absolute thrill seeker. And is will t will work tirelessly to get uh, to the end, uh, and it's a trend in his life. You know, he was a marathon runner. He's a Naval Academy graduate. He's run, I don't even know how many marathons, but a lot of marathons. You know, he started off his career flying S threes, uh, put in for a, a Hornet transition, and I I remember him telling me a story at some point. He was told by his CAG that it would be a, a substantial. Uh, caused substantial harm to his career if he switched from the S3 to the F18, that it wouldn't be a good career move. And and then lo and behold, I meet him as the skipper of the Blue Angels. So I think he probably did okay. Um, but he was a, was a great guy to work for. I think the relationship between the flight surgeon and the boss is a critical relationship on, on the team uh, because, you know, the boss is a, to say it's a stressful job is, is an understatement. And, um, the boss doesn't have a whole lot of people on the team that he can really confide in and blow off steam. And I think the flight surgeon is probably the natural uh, person to, to be the ear to, uh, to the commanding officer. And uh, he and I developed a great uh, friendship since, and we still, we still see each other. 
Gotcha. And one of the things that actually happened during your first season as flight surgeon was the collapsed lung of pilot Len Anderson. Can you talk me through how you managed the treatment of Len's injury? And I believe you were actually able to bring him back for the 2004 season. Yeah, that was that was interesting. So Lonnie, uh, this was, let's see, we were in San Francisco, I believe. And I guess this gets back to you know, flight uh, pilots not wanting to come to the flight surgeon when they have a little ache or pain. And Lonnie was on the golf course and started having chest pain and thought he would just sort of wait it out and see what happened. Well, you know, he called me five or six hours later and said, Doc, I feel like I can't breathe. And we got him over to the emergency room uh, in San Francisco. And, you know, I half expected based on his clinical presentation what was happening. But sure enough, he had a spontaneous pneumothorax and got admitted to the hospital and got a chest tube. Well, the problem for a Navy pilot is that as an immediately grounding event, I mean, you are down for uh, 90 days from resolution of symptoms uh, at a minimum at that time is what is what the waiver required. So uh, of course, I wanted to keep the team safe, but the, the goal was to keep the team uh, functioning as a team. So then, uh, you know, we had to get him treated, obviously, make sure he was well and then try and get him back in the airplane as soon as possible. So we got, uh, this is where having a C-130 in the, in the Fat Albert Airlines really, really paid dividends. We got those guys to um, get Fat Albert ready, and we were able to fly him uh, direct from uh, San Francisco to Pensacola, Florida. We landed at Pensacola. There was an ambulance waiting for him. Uh, we got him in the ambulance, admitted to the hospital. He had an operation the next day to fix his pneumothorax. And on the 90th day, after that operation, I had his, uh, not only was his waiver in my hand, but he flew over me uh, in the desert in El Centro uh, and told me how good it felt to be back in the cockpit. So I felt like I had done my job on that one and, and he delivered as well. Great story. Do you have any other memories that stick out from that 2003 air show season before we move on to 2004 here? Let's see. I think 2003 was the first year I met uh, Boss Forrest. That would have been in Salinas. Or no, that would have been 2002. I'm sorry. So I was a khaki newbie when we first went to Salinas. And I actually have a picture with your grandfather uh, in my khakis. Uh, with uh, So Dave Varner is in that picture. He was also a khaki newbie. He was the 3-4 pilot on my team. And Craig Olson Merlin, uh, who was 7-6-5, was in that picture. But 2003 was a, um, I think we had a really solid team. You know, it's you spend a lot of time uh, in winter training, really understanding the group dynamics. I think, I think as a first year guy on the team, you're just trying to learn like where you're supposed to be and when you're supposed to be there. Uh, it is a very, very challenging squadron with a lot of responsibilities. Uh, it's not just uh, going to all these great cities and flying air shows. Uh, so I think that, you know, the, what I remember that year was a blur of, you know, what city am I in this weekend and uh, what do we have to do next? So you make it to your second year, and now you have a film crew following you around for the documentary series A Year in the Life. How was it working with that crew? Were they a distraction? Were they fun? Are there any funny stories or good stories interacting with that crew? They were extremely professional, really enjoyed it. I think the, um, the awkwardness at the beginning was the thing you have to appreciate about the Blue Angels is the 16 officers that make up the team. You know, when you're in the ready room, you really have to sort of bare your soul. You have to take ownership of all your mistakes. You take safeties for the things you've done wrong or, or said wrong or for what the pilots would do wrong in the flight or for what I would do wrong grading the flight. We would all take safeties. 
And it's very private because you're you're kind of laying it all out there. And the reason we take safeties is because if you don't take a safety, somebody else is going to call you out. Having a film crew film that was really hard because now you want to take ownership for your mistakes, but it's going to be on TV. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? So, so I, I think the the most the most interesting discussions we had about whether or not to do this happened long before when we, you know, what we wanted was uh, we wanted a documentary. I think the, this, the team universally sort of wanted the story to be out there for people to see what really happened behind the curtain, because it's just, it's extremely hard work, but we wanted it to be done in a way that cast the best light on the team and that uh, nothing embarrassing would happen. And there's always embarrassing things happening. And I'm sure we'll get to some of those uh, in a bit, but um, the, you know, the one thing that I I'll take, uh, I, I'm still taking a safety for this. The, the only time in my two year tenure on the team that I missed a brief was when I was doing an interview with that film crew. And it was, uh, it was incredibly embarrassing because you, you sort of don't miss a brief. I mean, that is your primary responsibility is to be at the brief, to be on time and to deliver this, uh, this, this air show. Um, we were doing an interview. I don't even remember what city it was in, but um, we finished the interview right at the, the brief time and I just couldn't get there. So uh, that was embarrassing. And unfortunately, one of the things that that documentary actually captured was when one of the demo pilots from that 2004 season had to step down due to medical reasons and what was described as a, a severe head cold. And you were the flight surgeon essentially making that decision, and you describe it as one of the toughest decisions you've had to make in your Navy career. Can you give us insights into having to make that difficult call? It was really hard, uh, and it was compounded by the fact that uh, that he was he was an incredible incredible human being, a, a great uh, fighter pilot, a, a decorated combat pilot, a, a fantastic Marine Corps officer. He kind of embodied all of the qualities that I thought a Blue Angel should have. I mean, that's why he was selected to be on the team. Ultimately, what helped me make the decision was trying to do a risk analysis you know, I think we probably accept, and and I'm just speaking as 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 me, a doctor, not uh, on behalf of the Navy. When I say this, I think that we probably would be willing to accept a different level of risk tolerance with an individual flying a single seat aircraft, because if they make a mistake, they're they're putting themselves in harm's way, and and of course they're not ignoring collateral uh, damage and people on the ground. But if a pilot crashes an airplane because he did something wrong, he's he's hurting himself. If a pilot creates a mishap that harms other people in the squadron, that has a much deeper implication. And I think ultimately what got me there was saying, hey, you know, he might have a mishap that harms himself and and harms somebody else in the squadron. And not only are these guys my teammates, they're all my friends. So we spent a tremendous amount of time and uh, medical effort trying to figure out, trying to get to the bottom of the medical issues, and uh, we just couldn't get there from where we were. Yet at some point, you have to make a decision how much time we have an obligation to the team, and the, the, the team's obligation is to provide air shows. Uh, in my job, my obligation to the team was to keep those pilots safe and and keep that demonstration as safe as I possibly could with with whatever influence I would have on the wingman and the and the boss. 
at some point you have to say, we can't get there from here. And then I, uh, when I got there, I made the recommendation to boss that we make it a five plane team. And that's ultimately what happened. It was, it was really tough. Another tough moment that that documentary series captured was the aftermath of Hurricane Ivan, which ravaged Pensacola towards the end of 2004. The Blue Angels played a part in that hurricane relief. Can you give us some insights and and any personal stories of dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Ivan? You know, it was was a really strange time. Um, I'll tell you a funny story about Hurricane Ivan, because what I remember most was uh, the tremendous disruption that we had. And, And first, I have to preface this by saying that this was Boss Bartlett's homecoming air show. This was, we were in Nantucket when this happened, and we had to leave. We... Uh, canceled the air show and flew out. And um, I think that was probably the the, uh, biggest disappointment of his tenure as boss. But we ended up back in Pensacola. I ended up um, actually right after the hurricane, I had a residency interview in Boston. So I made my way over to Boston and flew back to Mobile, Alabama, and then rented a car and took a car over to Pensacola and the pilots made their way back to Pensacola. And, uh, it was the funniest thing because, you know, at at this point, three or four days had elapsed. And I remember going back onto the base with, uh, with Varmint and Merlin, uh, two of my newbies who were, uh, who were, uh, F-18 pilots. And we were going through everybody's, uh, our houses where we lived to get the, the refrigerators out of the houses because they had all this food and milk and all this stuff had been spoiled. And, <laughs> It was so funny. I remember these guys standing on the front lawn, opening the refrigerators, and they they started dry heaving. And I'm thinking, you know, these guys are sort of these these are combat decorated fighter pilots that are throwing up at the at the smell of of uh, rotten milk after the hurricane. <laughs> and um, but you know, it was a um, it was a huge setback uh, for the team. We had to go into a holding pattern because the base was obviously closed. Let's see. We went back to El Centro, I believe, for a couple of weeks and just flew uh, the practice. We flew the practice, you know, back to practice schedule. So six days a week until uh, we could get the base reopened. And then, and then I, as, as I recall, Fat Albert was doing uh, recovery stuff with, with Pensacola. But during that time, I would have been uh, in back in El Centro. And one of the air shows that was actually at risk of being canceled was that 2004 Salinas air show uh, because of Ivan, but you guys were able to get the show back on the road and that, that Salinas air show happened. And that one was, well, it had personal significance to me because you guys actually honored my grandfather, Butch Voris, the evening before the air show. And one of the things you did for him was you gave him a front row seat and fat Albert with a Jado takeoff. Now, Doc, did you give him a medical waiver? Did you evaluate him? He was 85 years old. And let me tell you, my mom and I were on the ground nervous as hell. Uh, if I could have had it my way, I would never have let him get in that bird. But man, when it landed, he, he got right off that thing with some help from Boss Bartlett. And he had the biggest smile on his face. I just, I don't recall if I did a, a medical, I know I didn't examine him. Usually when we did medical reviews for anyone to fly on a Jado or in the back of the Hornet, it was mostly paperwork. And on occasion, it would uh, on occasion it would require a physical exam, but uh, not for Boss Forrest. Well, like I said, he he loved it, and I was actually able to get the story from both Boss Foley and Boss Bartlett, who were in the cockpit of, of Fat Albert that day for that Jado takeoff, and they said some very interesting things came out of Butch's mouth when they got to the top of that Jado takeoff that I'm not going to repeat here in this podcast. But he had a blast. That's right. So, <laughs> do, do you have any memories from meeting Butch that evening, or or any interactions with Butch that you recall? You know, what I remember about Boss Forrest was that he was uh, incredibly gracious and he just had a tremendous presence about him. 
And uh, I have to assume that he he probably brought that from uh, from his days as a naval aviator, and I think that's probably why he had such success getting guys to to follow him on the team. Um, he told stories about his demo team that at the time I just had a hard time believing they could be true. I mean, stories about how they would bungee airplanes together to try and do uh, diamond formation takeoffs. Uh, but then, the, you know, as you talk to more of these old guys from the fifties and sixties, you you realize these things actually happened as they were experimenting with how, how close could we get the airplanes together? Uh, He was absolutely committed to making that team great and to selling the U S Navy to the American people. And I, I imagine he he probably never envisioned that it would uh, become what it is today. I always sensed a a great deal of pride uh, when he saw the blue angels and we had a great deal of pride that he was sort of our founding father. Uh, We loved boss for us. He was great. Yeah, no doubt. Butch, a very special guy. And I always think back on that night in Salinas very fondly. And and I always love hearing stories from people that were involved in that Jado takeoff. But how about some other show sites that really appealed to you? What were some of your favorite show sites during your tenure in the Blue Angels? You know, probably my favorite show site would be Salinas for two reasons. One, because it, it really meant a lot to me uh, to meet Boss Boris. But the other thing was Sean Tucker is based in Salinas. And there is no greater ambassador to aviation and to naval aviation than Sean D. Tucker. Uh, And if uh, anybody who's ever met him knows that he has just this unbelievable, infectious passion for flying. And during that weekend, that that show weekend, you know, my wife and I went to his home and had dinner, which was spectacular. Uh, And he took me flying the next day in his uh, two-seat pits, and he absolutely wrung me out. Uh, But it was a fantastic experience and um, really gave me an a, a renewed sense of appreciation for how dynamic what he does uh, in that airplane. Uh, and then the other show that, that uh, really sticks out uh, would have been Fort Lauderdale, the air and sea show. And I think that was um, a very memorable show because they, they extended a great deal of hospitality to the wives of the team. And that meant a lot to us. You know, we, you know, there's a little bit of, I don't know. I've actually not talked about this with my with my teammates, but I always had a little bit of guilt about uh, the way you get treated when you're on the team. You get treated really well, and uh, although you work very hard, and I I think it's a very difficult job. You know, we were on the team uh, when golf two started winding up uh, during that campaign. So you know, we're trying to bring awareness to the American people about naval aviation and Marine Corps aviation, and uh, we're spending all these weeks away from home, but we're still staying in very nice hotels and, and really not in, in harm's way in the sense that our, our uh, colleagues are over in the Gulf. So I always felt a little bit guilty about that. And uh, kind of getting back to your show sites, the, the, and I hate to single out those two shows because I also remember it was really neat going to show sites that are kind of in small towns in America because you really got to see what life in the middle of the country was like, places that you wouldn't normally visit. Um, they treated us great, and and I loved every minute of it. So you mentioned getting a ride in the back of Sean D. Tucker's airplane. I have to assume that you got a ride in the back of a Blue Angels demo at least once, if not multiple times. Yeah, uh, many times. I don't know how many. I would typically uh, fly in the back of the 7 jet either on a – so we had a couple of practice days in Pensacola during the week. We would practice Tuesday, Wednesday, and then transit on Thursday. So I would on – for the dock to fly would typically be either a Tuesday practice – or on a transit. And then in November, I could fly as they were winding up the new team doing uh, some of the more relaxed drills. 
And I think on one of those, I flew with Boss Bartlett, but I would fly with uh, the solos on occasion and then the four pilot on occasion. And I have to assume you probably never got sick because it probably looks pretty bad at the flight surgeons in the back of the plane throwing up. Not one time. <laughs> I'm convinced, though, that the solos had a mission to try and knock out the doctor in the back of the jet. So they certainly tried, but it, it did not happen. I had a it was a lot of fun. It was, a, it was a great experience. And earlier you mentioned the medical waiver required to fly in the backseat of an F-18 Hornet with the Blue Angels. And, you know, I've seen videos of people getting sick in the back of the airplane on YouTube. But did you ever have anyone get severely ill to the point where they actually required medical assistance after their VIP flight? So we do a lot of VIP flights on uh, Wednesdays. What would typically happen is the, the 7 jet with number 7 and number 8 would fly to a show site a day before the rest of the team would get there. And they would do the media flights or the VIP flight. So sometime the week prior to his arrival, I would look at paperwork. Typically, um, we were we were pretty careful about who we selected uh, to ride in the back of the jet. I didn't ever want anybody to have a, a substantial medical problem. I think I don't know if I would say most, but certainly more than half of people who fly in the back of the airplane get motion sick. And the uh, the crew chiefs are great about uh, prepping people for it and, and uh, not making them feel bad when they come back with a full bag. But most of the people got sick and typically just uh, laying down and, and kind of resting for a little while would, would make that get better. But when we had people who had um, substantial medical problems, we just you know, out of an abundance of caution, I would not approve them to fly in the back of the jet. All right, my man. Well, I picked up on something you said earlier in this podcast. You mentioned embarrassing moments. Do you have any embarrassing moments or stories that are on the top of your head you're willing to share with us here today? Uh, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, I, I, have, a, I have a good story for uh, when Boss Foley transitioned to the team. Uh, so when Boss Foley was a khaki newbie, we were in Monterey. And I actually remember we went out and uh, there's a game we play in the Blue Angels called uh, the, the Fortis game. It was a way for the team to get together and, and have uh, a, a reasonable cocktail hour. Let me say it like that. So we would have uh, a good social uh, time together. And uh, Boss Foley, uh, as you know, is extremely energetic and very, very hard charging. And I think he's uh, was a fantastic naval officer and a, and a great boss for the team. But he is full throttle. And uh, what I remember about the end of that night was Boss Foley running down the street outside of the Britannia Arms pub carrying uh, Boss Bartlett's wife on his shoulders <laughs> and, and, and until, he, uh, until he took a header and uh, showed up the next day at the brief with a shiner and uh, some road rash on his face. And I think he had to take a safety and pay five bucks for that one. And was the flight surgeon called in to, to take care of business there? Absolutely. And, and made everything better. <laughs> so as your time wound down with the Blues, were you ready to get off the road? Were you sad to be leaving? What were your feelings as you approached the end of your time with the Blue Angels? You know, it was very bittersweet. I think um, the pace of the team wears anybody down. And uh, I really enjoyed the team. It is, uh, it is, however, it is a very challenging two years and it takes, uh, it, for me, you know, maybe there are certainly, uh, better blue angels than I was, but it took, uh, it absolutely took a hundred percent of my fiber to, uh, to be on that team and to do what needed to be done. It just encompassed all of your bandwidth and it's hard because you, you spend so much time away. 
So I was ready. And, and the other part of it was, you know, I was at an odd point in my career. I was, uh, I was a Navy doctor and had been for several years, but I hadn't finished my residency. Uh, and by my second year on the team, we'd had our first child. I'd been married for a little while. So it was kind of like I was sort of uh, waiting to exhale. I needed to get to the next level and, and figure out what I was going to do with my life and grow up. And so I think I was ready to go. But, you know, it's interesting because when you leave an opportunity like that, you you probably don't you probably don't appreciate the richness of of the life experience that you're immersed in until you get to look back on it after the fact. Uh, uh, I had an absolutely great time as a Blue Angel. I certainly I would go back in a heartbeat. Uh, and to this day, I know this has happened to other guys on my team because I've talked to them about it. I still have dreams on occasion that the team has called and something happened to their flight doc and they need a flight doc. Can you come back? So, uh, no, I, I really miss it. It was great, but it was, it was probably time for me to go when I went. <laughs> well, let's, let's hope nothing happens to the current flight surgeon. So they don't need you, Aaron B Hicks, but do you, do you ever connect with the current team? Do you connect with the current flight surgeon at all? So on occasion I'll send emails, you know, the, the team is so busy. When I was on the team, I, I was glad to meet and hear from exes, uh, but it, it uh, being on the team took so much time, uh, and, and, and out of respect for that, I try not to send a lot of emails or requests. I probably go to one or two shows throughout the year, and, and we tend to stay sort of uh, out of the way. But for probably the past, I don't know, 12 or 14 years, I think I've gone to every end of season. We just, it is now a um, an annual ritual for me, and uh Boss Bartlett goes every year. A um, handful of guys from my team go every year. So we've kind of become regular fixtures. And it's neat to see the different teams because I think you go through phases where you get off the team, you stay away for a while, uh, then you start to miss the team. Maybe you come back for one end of season, then you stay away for a while. And then, at least in my case, I started going back every year. And now we really look forward to it. And about five years ago was when I started bringing my wife. It used to be sort of the guy's trip where we'd go and catch up on uh, with the team. And, and now it's sort of my uh, annual couples trip where we take our wives down and, and have a great, great reunion weekend. You know, it's interesting because you talk about trying to stay away from the team when you first leave it. And that must have been tough for you in your case, because at the end of the 2004 season, heading into the winter of 2005, you just left the team and the Blue Angels suffered an ejection off the coast of Pensacola. The pilot was okay. But how hard was that for you to not be part of that team and not be part of the management of that medical situation? You have to appreciate something that the Blue Angels do, and we call it the clean break. So we finished the end of season on... Uh, Saturday every year. And there may be a change of command every other year on Sunday. But when you finish the season, there's a week that you have off and then you start back the following week. But during that week that you're off, you are sort of removed from the squadron. Your picture is no longer in the ready room. Your parking space is gone. It's, it has the new flight surgeon's name on it. Your name tag on the door is gone. It is a clean break. And there's sort of this uh, unspoken expectation that you won't come back to the squadron and sort of hang around because, you know, everybody stays in Pensacola for a little while after they get off the team. So we have the end of season, you know, I'm still uh, trying to wind down and, and figure out where uh, things are in my house because I haven't been there for, for two years. And I sit down with my wife and we're watching the news on TV and we hear on the news that there is a Blue Angel ejection nine miles off the coast of Pensacola. And I, I'm thinking to myself, how could this be? Like, I mean, I'm I'm really gone. Like, I've been gone a week and they've, 
they've stopped calling. <laughs> so um, as it turns out, uh, Bunza, who was the, uh, the pilot, uh, was fine, uh, luckily. And I didn't get the full story until uh, a month later when we went to the Christmas party. And I saw him at the Christmas party, and, and he told me about the story of his ejection. And luckily, he ended up doing okay and um, uh, in the squadron. Um, I think it caused the squadron to change some of their uh, SOP and, and training practices, but ultimately the squadron did okay after that ejection. But it, it highlights the culture that when you're there, you are expected to be fully immersed. Uh, but then when you when your replacement shows up, you train your replacement as the khaki newbie, and then you are gone. And I actually have have brought that clean break philosophy uh, with us. Uh, with, with me in my in my practice, because when we have somebody retire from the practice, I think it's very important to uh, announce the the person's retirement. You know, highlight all the things that they contributed to the organization, and then have a clean break because it is an important psychological step for that person to know that they are now uh, no longer an active member of that team and they need to move on. Do you ever get recognized in public to this day from being featured in the documentary A Year in the Life? Not lately, but I'll tell you an interesting thing happened when I was a couple of years, probably three years after I left the team. Let's see, actually more. This would have been in 2008. So well, four years after I left the team, I was in a hospital. I was in the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, in scrubs. Uh, I was finishing my residency there and I was waiting for an elevator. And a, and a guy walks up to me in the hallway and says, you're Doc Mullen. You're the Blue Angels flight surgeon. I mean, just out of the blue, completely off guard. And I just looked at him and I said, how could you possibly recognize me? And he did. He just was uh, an air show fanatic and had watched it and I guess could really, you know, had a memory for faces and picked me out of a crowd. So it was neat. It, it kind of made me feel, uh, feel good to be recognized, but generally not anymore. <laughs> and if you don't mind my asking, what are you doing nowadays? So I, I did a residency in anesthesiology. And then uh, I finished that in 2008 up in Boston and then uh, went to MIT for business school to get an MBA and then uh, fully expected to get into medical devices and the biomedical space, but ended up doing mergers and acquisitions for anesthesia practices. So I moved to North Carolina and uh, I'm working with a a very large practice uh, that's headquartered in Greenville, North Carolina. And that's what I do. I do business development. I'm still clinical full time, but I do business development and um, practice management for, for groups. All right. So that wraps up another episode of the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. Special thanks to Dr. Gary Mullen for joining us today. Loved hearing some of those stories. Do me a favor. Make sure you're subscribed to the Blue Angel Phantoms YouTube channel. Make sure you're going on your favorite podcast app and subscribing to the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. I'm going to keep pumping out these interviews, keep sharing the Blue Angels history. So until next time, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you real soon.